Iowa everywhere. Sage Rosenfels, Brent Bloom. Heard and, Heard and viewed exclusively across the world, only on Iowa Everywhere. Hello, everybody. This is Sage Rosenfels of the Rosenbloom podcast of the Iowa Everywhere Network. I am here today solo. My man, Brett Bloom, is out. He's got some business to attend to. I've got, uh, I guess, a friend, a good friend, Eric Eager, uh, who I met, I'm trying to think, well, I'm going to ask you this question, Eric, and by the way, you're, you're coming from Cincinnati. You do seem to travel around the country, but currently you're in Cincinnati. How do we know each other? It's it's actually kind of crazy, Sage, because I, I grew up uh, in Minnesota. I my, my dad, my mom are Vikings fans. I was, you know, I grew up a Vikings fan. And I got to say, like, you know, I, right around the time, you know, that that you were on the team, that was kind of like the end of my Vikings fandom. So uh, I was, you know, having having, uh, you know, lived through and a lot of these, you know, you probably know these guys, but like having lived through, uh, you know, Brad Johnson, Brooks Bollinger, Kelly Holcomb, Tavares Jackson, when, when the Vikings traded for you. Uh, I, I was actually like fairly optimistic. And so, um, you know, I, I've been a fan of yours when you played for Houston and then, um, and then of course the Brett Favre thing happened. So, um, and then I think, you know, as I got into media, so I was a you know math professor and stuff. And then I got into football, uh, through pro football focus, you and I, I think did a Vikings pregame show once, um, right before, I think it was Vikings Packers on like Christmas Eve of like 2019, the Vikings needed to win to like win the NFC North and, uh, your favorite quarterback, Kirk Cousins put together a profoundly primetime Kirk Cousins performance that night, uh, in, in a loss, uh, with the Vikings were favored and all that good stuff. And, and, uh, yeah, I th- have things changed that much since then. Probably not, but that was like the last time the Vikings were good before this year. Yeah, it is interesting, and and uh, well, I'm, I'd like to give give the audience some of your credentials. Right, uh, you grew up, you played high school football, you played college football uh, at small. I'm actually going to allow you to to give your own credentials because I'll probably ruin them or or massacre them. Yeah, I played at Minnesota State Moorhead, which uh, has had a few you know people um, you know, have league ties like myself. And then, uh, Mark Tressman played there, uh, the former, uh, quarterbacks coach for the Vikings. And I, 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 I played for Mark Tressman in my, there you go. Yeah. Yeah. And he very nice guy, by the way, uh, somebody who I, I, I ended up meeting after, uh, I, I became a you know professional football analyst and, and everything. Um, yeah. So then I went and then I went to the University of Nebraska, Lincoln. And and actually, that was the reason we we last hung out is I was in Lincoln uh, for uh, to give a couple speeches on campus. Um, I got my Ph.D. there. I went to uh, University of Wisconsin, La Crosse. I ta- taught there for six years. Uh, during that time, I started consulting for Pro Football Focus. Um, and then I joined there full time in 2018. Um, I ran research and development there uh, for the past few years. And then recently, uh, I left to join a, a sports analytics startup called Sumer Sports um, with Thomas Dimitrov, the former general manager of the Atlanta Falcons. So, um, yeah, it's, it's been a, a fun and, and windy road, I'll say. 
I love reading your LinkedIn. I'm not a big LinkedIn person. My girlfriend's like, that's her Twitter is her LinkedIn, you know, mm-hmm. but for me and my Twitter is my Twitter and my LinkedIn is like, mm, I check on it like once a year. Uh, I probably should check on it more, but your LinkedIn says, I studied applied mathematics and mathemat- mathematical biology at the University of Nebraska. Mathematical biology. That's interesting. Where I wrote my PhD thesis on how stochasticity Mm-hmm. So how you say it? Stochasticity yeah. and nonlinear processes affect population dynamics. I'm not going to go into all that, but it sounds extremely complex and probably above my, I know above my math pay grade. I was really good at math when I was a kid. I was usually like one of the first ones done uh, with my worksheets. Got a lot of, got a lot of stars, got a lot of uh, 10 out of 10s. But once it got to sort of algebra and things got a little more complex, it, it sort of went over my head a little bit, uh, enough to where like I got basically B's and B pluses as I as I went through high school. But uh, for you, math was like a I was like a passion, and I was not just something you were good at, but something that you wanted to get into for the rest of your life. And then you mixed it with football, another one of your passions, a sport that you played, and you got into this world of sort of mathematics and football, which for for forever, for, for, for decades and decades, football and, and math people were like on the opposite ends of the spectrum as far as it relates to, to really anything. And it's really just what in the last 10 to or so years, 10, 15 years, where football coaches have started to say, you know, we could use some of these math people, uh, whether on the sidelines or in meetings leading up to the games or even in a booth, to maybe help us make the uh, decisions. Do you think that's been a, a, a huge change uh, with like coaching? You know, coaching is very much like an ego driven sport and, you know, the, the head coach has to know the most and he knows of course, most more than the, all the assistant coaches. And there's, there's been this history of like not being open to, you know, quote unquote, the nerds coming in and telling us what to do. But now I think you're, you're seeing, the effects of that, of, of actually th- these coaches, long-time successful or, or whatever, college and pro, having people like you come in and tell them, hey, what, what, what gives us the best chance to be successful? Talk to us about that sort of journey about how mathematics has really jumped into the world, in particular of football, but in the world of sports. Yeah, I, I think, you know, what's really funny is that it's been there for a while, but it really only kind of scratched the surface. So like Virgil Carter um, in the seventies actually wrote a paper um, about like turning yards into points. So, you know, one of the things that's really big in football analytics right now is expected points. So, you know, like the average sack is a certain yardage value, but if you translate it to points, like the average sack costs an offense, two points. And mm-hmm. so like being able to put that on the common currency, that was actually Virgil Carter. And if, and, and if people don't know, Virgil Carter was, the the basically the quarterback that started the West Coast offense with Bill Walsh because you know he had replaced a, a you know I, I can't remember the the guy he replaced name but like they had a very strong arm quarterback in Cincinnati who was who was injured and they put Virgil Carter in and Virgil Carter kind of was like the West Coast quarterback that where he didn't have a strong arm he had some mobility and so Bill Walsh when he was coaching with with uh, uh, Paul Brown. Um, put an offense around him that was basically about orchestrating short passes and, and, and efficiency and trying to replace some of the run game with the pass game. And obviously you, you fast forward 10 years, 
Bill Walsh gets passed over for the Cincinnati job. He goes ahead and gets the 49ers job. He drafts a quarterback in Joe Montana, who who famously didn't have the greatest arm, but had great processing and great movement skills. You know, they go, they win four Super Bowls in the 80s. And, you know, the West Coast offense is now, you know, you know, one of the greatest, you know, trees in all of football. And and the guy that started that was a thinker in in Virgil Carter. And then Bill Walsh, if you read Bill Walsh's book, Bill Walsh was was approaching these notions over and over and over again when he was a coach and like we didn't call it math or we didn't call it analytics but it was giving his team an edge uh over the competition over and over and over again and then you know you fast forward a little bit more to bill belichick right where you know bill belichick you know in the early 2000s everybody was running the 4-3 defense because you know all the colleges ran the 4-3 defense and so all the edge players that they were getting were players that they understood and belichick you know, he saw a guy, you know, like Ted Washington on the free agency. You know, he saw guys like Vince Wolfork, Ty Warren, you know, in the draft being undervalued. He said, look, I can I can try to win at the 4-3 defense or I can find a bunch of cheap players and run a 3-4 and teach these guys my way and get an edge that way. And then, of course, everybody transitions to the 3-4, including, uh, you know, this season with our Vikings. And again, I think of that as analytics, looking at the value in- inherent in players and trying to find an edge there. And and over time, guys like me have looked at those things. And, and you know, I'm I'm obsessed with football. I love football. We're tr- no, what we're trying to do is codify what's in Bill Belichick, Bill Walsh, what, what in, was in Virgil Carter's brain. We're trying to look at the play-by-play data and trying to find those edges and say, you know, one of the big ones for you, and I know you're a, a big-time uh, you know fan and former player of, of Kyle Shanahan, it's looking like, oh, okay, if we run play-action pass, how much more valuable is that than just running a straight drop-back pass? If, we're, if we throw the ball out of 21 personnel on early downs, how much more valuable is that than throwing the ball out of 10 personnel or 11 personnel on early downs? And and again, it's just like, it's looking at the game we all love. And, and granted, not every analytics person loves football, but we're looking at the game we're all loving. Okay, let's see if we can build... It, you know, let's see if we can build efficiencies in this game. And what's really cool, and we, you've seen this this year, and I, I imagine it's it's making you rip your hair out, Sage, is we've seen defenses evolve because they see this analytics. They see how hard it is for offenses to be efficient against two high shells. And, you know, how, you know, if you if you play six men in the box, you can kind of bait teams into running the football, which is actually less efficient over time. And now you've seen scoring at like a decade's low in the NFL – and now the next question for people like me is going to be, okay, well, how do we attack those defenses uh, and use the numbers to our advantage? Because right now defenses in the NFL uh, have an advantage. So it, it, it's, it's just a cool, it's again, it's the way to like take what we all, what, what the smartest people in football already know and, and codify it so that we can test it and, and see what, which of it, you know, how true are all these things uh, and then where we can carve out efficiencies and ev- evolve the game and then answer all the new questions that come from the new game. It is interesting as you like look back on old football, you know, if you think of like old NFL highlights, like the, the old VHS uh, videos that you and I grew up with, um, it was, you know, toss left, toss right. And then the quarterback dropping back like on a nine step drop and throwing the ball deep, you know, uh, that the, you know, the Sonny Jorgensen era, um, it was just very different than than over time. It's turned into this like quicker passing game and quicker concepts. Um, but what, it's, what's interesting to me, and, and I've been pretty outspoken uh, about the 
advantages of play action, the advantages of the bootleg game, at least for the quarterback, right? So I'm at Iowa State. I threw for 52% my senior year. I threw for 10 touchdown passes. We ran the ball uh, sort of old-fashioned. But when you do do that, you you don't turn the ball over very often. Uh, you don't get sacked in the pocket, sack fumbles, these sort of catastrophic plays. It's what's much more conservative but it does, at the end of the day, win football games. So maybe statistically, as far as what you talk about with yards, you may not put up five or 600 yards every week. But it's like the – I always say it's like a, the – you know, no, no one does under center. It seems like a lot of people don't do, even do under center in college football anymore. But the act of actually snapping it from center to the quarterback's hand and the quarterback handing the ball off, hand-to-hand-to-hand uh, uh, type of football, to me – just sort of wins games uh, because it sort of minimizes the risk of bad snaps or uh, the defense knowing where the quarterback's going to be. They have to, the, to play the run. Um, you know, people think of football also as like this vertical game from the line of scrimmage to the end zone. But I think what I learned from like Gary Kubiak and then Kyle uh, and then, of course, on that staff was was Mike McDaniel. On that staff was was Matt Lafleur. Was that in very many ways? And this is the outside zone. Football is really a sideline to sideline game, at least as far as forcing the defense to stop the run, sideline to sideline. And they all have to have those gaps. If you look at any good any defense that's structurally sound on any running play, they have somebody for every single gap as it goes sideline to sideline. And then when you force defenses to step into those gaps, uh, say an outside zone, a stretch play, they're not now in their drop back. Like if you were just straight dropping back and pass, the, the, those linebackers and safeties, they, they're supposed to be in certain spots on the field for that style of defense. But when they have to step up uh, uh, to play those gaps sideline to sideline, they're not in those spots, which then allows big plays to happen, big sort of cavities in the defense between the defensive line and the safeties. There's big areas in there because the linebackers aren't just dropping back. And so that's always been my biggest issue with this sort of shotgun thing, especially in college football, where like everybody has gone to the shotgun spread. The the sort of the, the, the defenses know where the offensive players are going to be and they don't have to fill these gaps, right? So it's like sort of like you feel like you make it easier on the defenses. And then you have schools like Iowa State, and you see it across now a lot like a lot of college football. They're playing like this three, three, five, because the spread offenses were just sort of ripping apart everyone that just played cover two or cover four or cover three, these sort of simpler traditional defenses. And they're like, wait a second, let's do something different. So I know I, you know, at Iowa State, Matt Campbell and, and John Haycock, our defensive coordinator, they were one of the early ones to this game of this three, three, five, that to really, it's really, really hard on the spread. But what they don't see is the traditional outside zone and play action that, that like you would see in the NFL, right? So I sort of find this like this, uh, I don't know what the, what, what the phrase is, a sort of uh, uh, changing of the sport that goes from, you know, all under center old school to shotgun, but yeah, NFL teams are still a lot, very much more under center and play action. How come college football hasn't gone to uh, what, a lot of the NFL teams are doing like, why is that? Why are they almost like different sports? I mean, people say, well, there's recruiting this and there at the end of the day, it's still a hundred yard field. It's still 53 yards wide. The only real difference is the hashes rules are basically the same. How come the college football 
is so different than NFL football from a strategy and X's and O's standpoint, at least from how you see it. Yeah. I, to me, it's, it's a, it's a couple of things, right? Like it's when we just have so few opportunities to coach players right now. Right. And, and, and football is one of those like rare games where, you know, if you want, like I had a, a my cousin played at university of Nebraska, Omaha hockey, right. And he was, we, he played division one hockey. He was like an okay player played since he was three years old. Right. So that dude had been playing hockey his whole life football, like a great deal of these guys are, are starting football in high school. Uh, and many of them are changing positions and many of the, and you know, you need an offense that you can be able to teach. Cause the other part about the sort of like the Baylorization of offenses in college football is like a guy like Corey Coleman ran like three routes in college. And, and so it's not only not, it, it's not only not stressing a defense anymore. It's also not stressing the intellect or the, the capabilities of the athletes you have because you need to be able to get them up to speed um, you know, uh, to, to a certain extent. So that's a big one too. It's just like, it's not as creative either, right? It's creative in that at first no one was doing it, but now everybody is. And, you know, it's basically, and this is the difference between college football and the NFL as well. It's like, it's basically can my athletes out athlete, your athletes. And, and in the NFL, like you just can't win that way. Right. Like you've seen it over and over again, where a team like, you know, the Los Angeles chargers have one of the most talented quarterbacks in the NFL and they can't really win because their offensive coordinator lets them down. Whereas there are other teams who, uh, you know, whose offense like take Seattle where, you know, Geno Smith is kind of a journeyman quarterback, but they're doing all the right things to help him. And they're having success on offense or being explosive. Um, so that, by the, that's way, one. by the way, Seattle offensive coordinator, uh, Shane Waldron, a part of that sort of Shanahan world. He worked for, uh, Sean McVay, um, with uh, with the LA uh, Rams, and so you're you're you are seeing that right. You're seeing some of those same that that style that Shanahan Kubiak yeah. McFay thing really is. And I had my most of my success in my career in that offense. It really does make it easier on the quarterback play designs, but also like how they call a game. Would you say that? Yeah, for sure. And I, I and 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 that offense, like I'll, I there are, I have issues with that offense to an extent of like, I don't know if it wins across games. Like I think, and you know, this is, this is silly stuff, but if you have Patrick Mahomes running Andy Reid's offense, that game can win that, that team, that offense can win any kind of game. They can win a game when they're ahead. They can win a game when they're behind they back and forth. Right. Whereas in my estimation, I think the Shanahan offense is a great offense when you're ahead like a great offense when you're ahead when you look at them when they win they win by a ton because when you're ahead you can run the football you can be multiple and and the other team can't really stop you you know it's as we saw sunday it's not the greatest offense when you're behind because that then you know defenses don't necessarily have to move and i actually seen this with um what's called the next gen stats tracking data in 2019, when the Niners won the Super Bowl, linebackers bit on in looking at linebacker movement, linebackers bit on play action and run action at the seventh highest rate in the NFL. Last year it was the 29th highest rate. Mm-hmm. So like teams are responding to Shanahan's offense by just having their linebackers stand still. Because the worst thing you could do is move into the wrong gap. 
right? And then you're giving up a 70-yard touchdown, which we saw like in the, the playoff games like against Green Bay with Shannon's offense. The second worst thing you can do, which is not that bad, is to just sit still and, and make Jimmy G, if they actually do pass the ball, throw it into different windows, right? And, and that the offense is still successful. Like last year, the Niners still made the NFC title game. They're still successful, but it's not necessarily as as explosive. And again, when you get to third and seven and you need to throw the football, you know, that the fullbacks and the tight ends and all that kind of stuff are not as useful to you. The other issue I think with that offense is it relies on talents that are so scarce in the NFL and, and in college football. And this is where I think why college football hasn't taken the time. I think it's possible, but hasn't taken the time to develop the talents necessary to run this offense if Kyle Juszczyk gets injured, there isn't a, re- a replacement for him in the mm-hmm. Niners offense. If George Kittle gets injured, and we've seen this, right? If George Kittle gets injured, there isn't a replacement for him in the Niners. Like there are five good tight ends in the NFL, right? Like, you know, maybe six. And 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 so there's a fragi- there's a fragility there that is rough, right? Where if Juszczyk and Kittle are healthy, then everything, I mean, it's so hard, right? But if one of those guys get, gets injured and that's a position that where you have a lot of collisions and you have a lot of, you know, risk there, it's just harder, right? You're, you're going back to more of a traditional offense from a personnel standpoint. And so I think that that's one of the reasons why college football hasn't gotten there is a, it's, it's hard that that tight end position is a hard position to develop um, even at the NFL level. And I don't know if colleges really believe in investing in that position and i think they should but i don't i don't know somebody's got to sell them on that uh do you think but but also in that offense it's, there's a couple of things one running backs though it seems to be a little more of an interchangeable parts right a lot of times those running backs going way back to the the mike shanahan era was who's this guy that's going to run for a thousand yards this year for the broncos right so there is an element of not having a star star player at the running back position, which is interesting with the McCaffrey trade. That's a whole other conversation. Um, but, but they, they've always had a lot of success with sort of interchangeable parts back there where I've always felt the offense struggled, as you said, with when they're, uh, when they're behind in a game is because the offensive line, by the way, they're trained. Sometimes they're smaller guys. Of course, Trent Williams doesn't count in that, or maybe a Dwayne Brown, the pretty big guys that, you know, left tackle, but a lot of times those guys are a little bit smaller and quicker, which is why they're so good at, you know, beating guys on, on some of the gaps or the outside zones, getting across someone's face uh, and making it harder on defense, but in straight one-on-one pass protection, they're a little light and, and not quite as big and bulky. They're not the old Dallas Cowboys offensive line of, you know, 340 and, and 350 at guard. They're yeah. two not they're 290 and that's where they struggle when they're behind. But as you said when they're in the lead, uh uh that's that offense is is really really tough to stop. Do you think college football cuz we really haven't seen it. Like the closest we sort of seen uh, to like that offense in college is, I mean, I'm sure some teams do it, but like the Iowa Hawkeye offense, which we all know is like legitimately one of the worst offenses all time. And you as a Nebraska guy and me as an Iowa State guy, that's sort of an enjoyable thing to say. But they're one of the few college teams that really focuses on offensive line development, tight end development. Uh, they just don't have ever, they never have any weapons on the outside or, a, a, you know, they don't have a David Montgomery, a Brees Hall at tailback, uh, much like less like an athletic quarterback. That's, that's dangerous, but at least from a, like a front seven standpoint, 
they do teach a lot of uh, traditional, more NFL-style offensive line play and have great success winning a lot of games without a lot of talent. So do you feel like other college systems, other college teams, I know Kentucky's one of these teams, they're trying to do as, as much sort of pro development to the college level. They have a Rich Gangarello there who is part of that sort of Shanahan tree as their offensive coordinator. Do you think that somebody sort of from that tree in the college football state, Nebraska, uh, do you think that because they'd be doing something different that no one else does? Do you think that they could possibly have success because of just doing something completely different and not in the shotgun and not in the spread? And it'd be easier on a young quarterback to be running bootlegs and play action than in the, in the shotgun constantly and, and running RPOs. Yeah, I think that, right. And I think also, by the way, RPOs are like, RPOs are like potato chips for an offense. Like they, they, they get you fed, but they're not good for you. Like I think, especially in player development, I think RPOs are terrible. The offensive line, like don't learn how to run block and like quarterbacks don't learn how to read defenses. I, I, I think RPOs, should be, like, I, I don't like them in a college offense. I don't like them in the NFL offense either, but um the hard, the hard sell, and this is—I think this is what gets to the eye. And the Iowa is a great example. Spencer Petras, bless his heart, is not a great quarterback. And you know what? And, and yet at the same time, like you look at the history of that team, you have Hawkinson, you know, you have Kittle, you you have development of of truly good all around tight ends. Yeah, no offense, no offense. Like you, you yeah. get you get NFL caliber tight ends there, and and that's kind of again, if you're going to run these offenses. You need to have a tight end who can who can block a six eye. You need a tight end who can run down the seam and and catch a football and be athletic. And you and you might need a fullback. And and like no one plays fullback in high school anymore. So like how you know and, and so there's a projection there that is going to be harder. And and then I think the last part of this that makes it the most difficult is that if you're trying to develop NFL caliber talent at the quarterback position the thing that you the, the sell that you have to have for these teams is or for these players is you come to our our team we're going to throw it 60 times a game you're going to get showcased and you you just look at last night in the England game like Bailey Zappi goes to Western Kentucky and like is you know he's setting the record for the number of passing yards and he becomes a fourth round pick out of sort of nowhere whereas you know some of these guys who play for more like you know sort of pro style offenses in college like they get hidden and, and and it's a cycle that sort of continues because you're like, well, we're not going to showcase you, so you're not going to come here, and then you're not going to play. Like we're not going to get great quarterbacks, and you know, so the, I think that where analytics can come in is, you know, and, and this is not a data rich problem, so I think it's ripe for disruption. Is like you, you say, okay, you make the hard sell. You say, look, we're going to make NFL caliber offensive linemen. We're going to make L NFL caliber backs and tight ends, and. You know, we're going to use analytics to find quarterbacks at the high school level who most people believe are Division II or FCS quarterbacks. And we're going to – and again, this is where the hard thing is because, you know, the 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 I don't know if the market's efficient or not, but, like, you need to have somebody come in and, and who everybody thinks sucks, who the offense will elevate, and who actually is a little bit better than a Spencer Petras, right? And so, and with NIL and stuff like that, like it's going to be harder to keep that guy. So you need to have a process in place where you can kind of cycle through them. But that is the Shanahan way, right? Like the Shanahan way is taking Jimmy Garoppolo, a second round pick out of Eastern Illinois, and having him 
be, you know, come in and just kind of drive the car. And then everywhere else is where you have all the talent, the McCaffrey's, the Samuels, the um, Iukes and guys like that. And defense. And, and the defense, right? And, and in the NFL, that's where you have the edge, right? Because when you when you don't invest as much in the quarterback as a team like Green Bay, a team like Kansas City, a team like that, like you can spend more on the defense. And then all the way back to the previous point we made, if you have a better defense, you're going to be ahead a little bit more. And then your offense can really be the hammer uh, when you're ahead a little bit more because of your defense. So I think for it to be adopted wild, widely in college, it need, there needs to be a process to get quarterbacks into the building who are undervalued by the recruiting market who are actually good. And, and that that's a tough one. And, and, but, but at the same time, like, I think that that's better than the alternative, which is trying to beat the Alabamas and the Baylors mm-hmm. and those teams at their own game. Yeah. Uh, as, as you said earlier, it's like my athletes versus your athletes. And, you know, we, we, we both watch our fair share of football you're a Vikings fan or we're a Vikings fan, right? You watch Kirk Cousins play, you know? Um, and when I watch Kirk Cousins play, I don't see some great athlete. I don't see a guy that would have had, was would have been a five-star or a four-star, probably not even a three-star recruit out of high school. He's got a strong arm, seems like a smart guy, like does works within the offense, but he's not out there making plays. I watch college football and guys are running around making plays all the time. I'm like, man, it must be really hard to be in that offense because there's so much re- reliance on the quarterback to like make things happen for the team to be successful. Meanwhile, I see the Minnesota Vikings for, I don't know how many years Kirk's been there now, five, six, seven years. He does not go- run around and make plays yet. They, they sort of consistently win games, at least half their games. But you know, this year they're what, they five and one. Uh, or something. So, you know, they're doing it without Patrick Mahomes or some superstar Josh Allen at the quarterback position. This is where I do think, as sort of you said, you can get a guy who's not a big recruit, doesn't have these astronomical physical numbers or, or, or high school stats, come to your school, develop them for a couple of years within this system. And then he doesn't have to win games for you. It just sort of like do your job and the rest of the coaching, the rest of the, the development on the offensive line, the development with the tight ends uh, and have that good defense. But you don't have to uh, ride or die if your starting quarterback is, is playing great or is injured or anything like that. And I just sort of feel like there's a spot in college football to – ask less of your quarterback to win more games. And I think a lot of people go, Hey, our quarterback has to be great for us to win games. Like, well, that sucks for the quarterback. Mm -hmm. That's a a hard thing to do. It's a hard thing to go out there 12 times a year. And and that the feeling on your shoulders of, I have to play incredible football and, and, and move around the pocket with people coming at me because we don't do any sort of play action. You know, they, they shotgun uh, the snap to me. The linebackers are all just dropping back into the places where I'm trying to throw the ball. There just aren't really like easy completions where again, Kirk Cousins gets easy completions all the time, whether it's the play action stuff, some bootleg stuff, uh, or just some non RPO things. You know that the to, to, to actually just um, take the snap and go back and be like, okay, it's a three step drop. I'm going to read it over here, read it over here, but I'm going to get the ball out. That to me has so much value than the ball is snap and there's just all this indecision of, am I going to hand the ball off? I'm reading some sort of, whether it's a defensive end, might be some sort of will walk linebacker outside. And I have to make some sort of like on the go decision. 
right? My, my, the, the ball is in the belly of the running back as I'm riding him. And I have to make a split second decision. And I just sort of feel like one, if you're an offensive lineman, you have no idea where the ball is going to be. So you might be up there kicking your guy's ass and yet the ball is thrown outside. And it's like, man, I would have liked it if we would have handed the ball off on that one. I see it all the time. I see running backs running through holes and then there's no one there. It would have been a 20 yard game, but the quarterback's now throwing a hitch on the outside for a four yard gain. And I just sort of feel like for a, from a quarterback's perspective, from a, from a team perspective, it would be better if like everybody knew what was going on and there wasn't so much reliant on the quarterback for the team, for the offense to be successful. It might, it might get more yards at the end of the day, but I'm not sure if it gets more wins. Well, I, I don't even know if it gets more yards. To be honest with you, like I, I look at RPO and I, I actually did this, you know, I'm a, um, when I, when I lived in Lincoln, I, I started rooting for the chiefs and I, I have friends within the organization and stuff. And I, who I talk to, and I, I, I actually owe a great debt of gratitude to them because I, I ask questions and they tell me the answers, which is, you know, as you know, it, within the league, it's not always uh, the case, but I, last season when they were struggling on offense, you know, he, my friend, he was like, Hey, take a look at their RPO stuff. And when I noticed with Kansas city is like, when they threw non RPO, they were effective. When they ran non-RPO, they were effective, but the in-between stuff was bad. And, and there's like, there's this thing called Simpsons paradox, which basically is like, if you run, you know, if you, if you make the offense can still look efficient, even though it, the inner, the in the, the inner parts are not efficient because of the rates in which you do them. And the chiefs were sort of like flying under the radar and that their offense was being efficient, but there was so much more meat left on the bone because the thing about RPOs is they're not definitive, right? When you have an offensive line that's as good as Kansas City's, right? You got Trey Smith, um, you know Creed Humphrey, uh, and, and and Joe Tooney as your interior three, and they're not able to get down the field on run plays because they're worried about being called for for a legal man downfield. They're just not as good of run blockers when you decide to hand it off. And when you're Patrick Mahomes, they have a problem that's worse than the Niners were like linebackers just don't move against Patrick Mahomes. Like, why would you, right? The guy, you know, just stand, you know, stand still, hope he hits you in the face with the ball and, and, and don't give a, you know, don't care about the running back because the running back in Kansas city is the seventh best player on the offense. So let him get five yards. And so they would, they would run RPOs. Linebackers would sit still. Pat would give the ball to the running back and the, the line wasn't actually moving anybody because they couldn't, because they didn't know. And, and it would be kind of this horrible kind of, milk toast offense when if you want to run the ball just run the ball run power run run gap run something like that and and if you want to pass the ball just pass the ball like you have nfl caliber receivers and they're running these dinky little rpo routes when you could really just drop back and throw and have them run a real nfl route so i I think that the big issue is and and this is the same thing about college football it's like you know, we, there's this thing called entropy, which is basically like how much information is given to you in every single uh, transmission of something. Right. So I think of entropy in football is like, how much information does this play give me? Right. And if I'm trying to evaluate offensive linemen, if you're running screens and RPOs and all that, like that play, he might've gotten a snap log in his, in his data, 
But I got no information about that lineman because he's do he's not doing anything, right? And so you're not developing NFL talent that way. You're not you're not showcasing your players and you're not developing them because they're not learning how to do anything. Same thing at the wide receiver position when they're running what slant, slant flat, they, all this kind of BS stuff that get run with RPOs. You're not learning anything about those players either. And and they're not developing. And so to me, it's just like a bad offense where you just if you just line up and do things definitively right and execute now execution is harder said than done or better easier said than done but like if you just line up and execute i think you're going to be better offensively over time especially now that these defenses kind of know like the weak side linebacker just sit still on rpo stuff because you know the run's not going to kill you that much and 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 generally speaking that's made rpos less effective over time do you think it's uh, like the chaos of being an offensive player in these systems where you just sort of don't know where the ball's going to end up? And in, in theory, it seems good because it's hard on a defense because they have to both, you know, play the run and the pass on the same play. But on the opposite end of it, the offense doesn't know if it's going to be a run or a pass. So it's an offensive line's blocking a, a D tackle for about a second. And then the D tackle just takes off running to go make like there's just a lot of variables there and to really yeah. almost cut down on the variables that would be at least what i would call winning football i'm not sure what phrase you guys use but i sort of call it just winning football everyone is on the same page on offense rather than sort of like the quarterback and the receivers being in one world and the line being in one world and they're sort of disconnected does that make sense and, and yeah, why it's more there? stable right so like in baseball right so in baseball it was you had the three true outcomes, which were strikeouts, walks, and home runs. And and when the ball's in play, now they've gotten better at this because they'll, they'll measure launch angle and stuff. But when the ball's in play, it's basically just random. And so, you know, over time, baseball analysts and teams would measure the three true outcomes. How often do you strike out? How often do you walk? And how often do you hit home runs? And, of course, that's made baseball less fun because now all guys do is strike out, walk, and hit home runs. Um, but, in, but in football, like if I'm trying to figure out how good a player is, I want things that are stable, right? I want to know how well he blocks on inside zone, outside zone, power counter man. And I want, and I want for him to know it's those things so that he can – you know, whether he's good or not, I'll find out quicker. And, and, and again, like with, with, you know, these games are like practice from an evaluation standpoint, because you don't have the practices at the depth. Like, I mean, I played two a days and I'm 36, you know, I, you know, you had two a days, but nowadays these kids don't do two. It like you don't get to evaluate these players. Well, there's, there's a couple of things I, I will say. So as far as I know, in college football, there's we don't have two days right there the practice yeah. might be fewer spring ball might be a little bit shorter than it used to be but as far as i know <clears throat> there's a lot more contact than there used to be okay i think there's a lot of film watching there is these sort of meetings that go on of course with ipads and zoom calls you can do a lot more uh, i don't know what the actual rules are i've just heard when i've talked to quarterbacks that that left college football or in going into the pros or just talking to some college football coaches, they're getting together a lot more than they used to. Okay. It used to be, I think, very strict in the office. Film was just a harder thing, too. It was just a harder thing to, to do. I mean, when I first got to Iowa State, they are still using the beta tapes. And then somewhere when I was there, about year three or four, where they got a laptop computer and all the meetings, and now we're doing this you know, exos on the computer. So it just from a, from a meeting standpoint, I do think there's the opportunity to teach 
players deeper levels of football, even though maybe physically they're not doing as many practices as as they used to. Um, so but are you able to evaluate those players? That's true. Like, are you able to get data on them? Like I do know, like a lot of these programs have the RFID chips in their shoulder pads. You can go to the data and see their movements and stuff. Like all that's valuable. But for me, it's it's more about. But like, how, how how valuable is it when you're when you're uh, trying to uh, critique the right guard? But as he's blocking somebody, the guy takes off to go make a tackle somewhere. How do you evaluate that? So it's like a waste of time. There's not as much information in those repetitions, right? So you have a harder time. Whereas I think if you if you ran an offense that was just more definitive, these are run plays, these are pass plays. Our drop back passing game has this structure. Our run game has this structure. And there's no and like you can find deception in other ways. You can find deception through jet sweeps. You can find deception through orbit motion or play action, like traditional play action. And that has its issues. Like quarterback efficiency on play action is not that stable, as you know. Like when you when you run a play action fake, like everything sort of opens up for you and and everything gets more fair, right? Like yeah. the difference between Mahomes and and Kirk Cousins on play action is not as big as the difference between Mahomes and Cousins on third and eight with seven, seven drops. Yeah. Exactly. So it, it you have some muddying of the waters there, but I think for the other 10 players, you have, you know, you gain more information about them. And I think that that is, I think that that's a good thing. And you know, to me, like that's where a college program who's struggling right now because the you know NIL is taking some players you know out west or or to the to the SEC ACC type thing. Like the sell that you be, might be able to have is okay. You know, they're going to take the quarterbacks for the other ten players. We're going to offer you the best showcase of your abilities, and, and you are going to be able to translate more quickly to an NFL team that you know has uh, that runs a similar thing that we do. So. I'm going to, you're, you're the president for the day at, at the university of Nebraska. Okay. And you can, you can make yourself the head coach if you want to, um, you can, you can do whatever you want, right? The world's your oyster here, Nebraska football. I grew up top five team, top 10 team year in, year out. The world of the landscape has changed. Uh, you know, so many schools are better in the South. Now it seems like the athletes are just sort of better in the South. Nebraska is on this Island and sort of the middle of nowhere in America, only a few, maybe four or five guys come out of the state of Nebraska uh, that are Division One caliber football players. I think Iowa, I'm an Iowa State guy, of course. I think Iowa has about uh, 12 to 15 guys. Of course, is twice the population. What should Nebraska do from a hiring process to get them back into the world of 10 and 2, 9 and 3, Big Ten West, competitive top tier team because they obviously have to do something different than than they've been doing for the last 15 years. Yeah. I, I think, you know, a lot of people want them to, t- to take on a, you know, recruiter, uh, a big name, you know, Matt rule, urban Meyer, um, you know, those kinds. I, and, you know, reportedly, and, and, you know, this is just information I've gathered is like, you know, Scott Frost, you know, was very innovative at UCF. Um, got good recruits there, ran one of those spread offenses, but, you know, you know, and, and, you know, caught some good luck with Mackenzie Milton and how good he was and some of the athletes there, um, went to Nebraska and tried to win reportedly tried to win the same way that they won when he was the quarterback. And of course, like, you know, whether that was the walk-on program or whether that, and it's just like, well, the, 
the difference is, is in the 90s, there were five games on TV every weekend, and you were one of them. And so you can entice a, a, a player to come to Nebraska and say, in three years, you're going to be on TV and you're going to the pros. Whereas nowadays, like, and I, you know, I, I, my betting group, like we gamble on college football, right? Like, um, or they do, I, I, I don't anymore, but like, I'm watching a sack state game because that's like where the edge is and that's on TV. A, an SCS game is on TV. Right. And so it's a tough sell to tell a lineman like, Hey, come to Nebraska in three years. You're going to be amazing. Where, when you can just go play at USF and be on Thursday night football on ESPN and get showcased in an offense that might use your skills better. Like, I don't think Nebraska is going to be able to out recruit the truly great teams in the country anymore. Like in a way where their scheme doesn't matter, if that makes sense. Right. And so I think most of the people that have come to Nebraska in the last 20 years have said, look, I'm going to come to Nebraska. This is a storied college football team. And, you know, and and that should be enough to get the athletes here. It's me. They want to come play for me. And it's like, no, that isn't how it works anymore. You you are not a blue blood program anymore. What you need to do, yes, recruit, use data, like do all the do all the things that are now table stakes for the great teams, the Michigans and the and and so forth. But you need to have a scheme. You need to you need to outsmart other teams because that is how that is how you are going to be impervious to losses in talent. That is how you are going to win one score games. Right? They can't even win one score games because their coach. And again, this is most college football coaches. So I'm not dinging Nebraska specifically. But you watch the end of any college football game, and none of these men know how to handle the clock. None of them know whether to go for two or go for fourth down. And it's because in most games, it's whether or not your talent is better than the other, right? And so if you randomly get into a close game, none of these men necessarily know how to win on the margins. So you need a guy whose assumption space is going to be, we are not going to be able to out-recruit Ohio State, Wisconsin, Michigan, uh, and, and let alone the SEC teams. And your assumption space has to be, we have to outsmart them, right? And then once that happens, you are going to attract the second tier players, in addition to top tier players, because you are Nebraska, but you are going to be able to attract second tier players. You're like, I don't know what the secret sauce is in Nebraska, but we win here. And so I want to go there and, and bet on myself. And then you get enough players to do that. And that's how you end up being like a Coastal Carolina, right? Coastal Carolina outsmarts teams. They're not like, you're telling me that Grayson McCall, like Grayson McCall's arm is worse than 70% of college football, but they outsmart them. They use them properly. You know, you look at Western Kentucky, it was the same thing. You look at Oregon State, like that team is bowl bound and we're in October. And that's just because they're outsmarting teams. They're going for the right fourth downs. They're going for the right two point conversions. You don't need to be amazing recruiting to, to squeeze out a win or two. And that, again, when you think about it, seven, you know, seven and five or seven and six, you know, and nine and four, like those are drastically different years. And, 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 you know, a coach can, can add that just for their intellect. Do you think that there's a, a sort of a sweet spot somewhere in this recruiting battle of, Hey, when you come here from day one, you're going to get NFL development, true NFL development. So after three years, four years, five years, you know, you're maybe a, a one or two star recruit from a small town. You're, you have to gain 50 pounds, especially as, as you know, closer to the ball, the longer it takes to develop. 
you don't really want to play as a freshman for the most part in college football because it's such a big jump from high school. There are some guys who are ready for it, but what to, to tell to tell a recruit when you come here after four years and you leave here, you're going to be able to go into this NFL pool where people are now making a minimum million dollars. And you're going to have four plus years of NFL talk, NFL uh, uh, verbiage, uh, you know, line calls, uh, by the way you describe everything. So whether you're drafted high or whether you're an undrafted free agent, the day you walk into that NFL building, your likelihood of making the team is like, hey, this guy's plug and play. Like he may not be as talented, but, you know, for a seventh rounder, he knows exactly what we're doing. Uh, you know, he may be at the very worst, he can make the practice squad, but he can be in, in our facility rather than some guy who has completely run some completely, uh, sort of, I guess, collegiate offense. And there's none of that sort of uh, understanding, sort of NFL understanding at the college level. And to me, that would be a huge recruiting tool to say when you leave here you're going to be pro ready i think that's what what iowa has done uh, offensive line tight ends wise where i think people go you know i need to develop anyway this would be a great school to give me the best opportunity to make real money which is at the next level i know now guys are making a million bucks or whatever and um at some of these schools in college football but do you think that would be a place where some some college programs could have the advantage of literally saying when you leave here you're going to be more prepared supposedly like that's what college is supposed to do that you go to my college for four years you leave here you're going to be the most prepared for the job market but imagine as a receiver you even talked about it like in the rpo where all the run is slants all the run is, is shallow some shallow crossing routes some flat routes are they really being prepared to understand how defense works when they're only running you know three or four routes in the, in the passing tree. Are they, are they, is there a missed opportunity there? Yeah, that's part of the tactical thing. That's, that's part of being, that's part of being smarter, right. Is running a different offense than everybody else. And, and, and you know, making sure that you have, you know, making sure that again, yeah, you're preparing because that's the edge, right. That's part of your recruiting tool is that, is that you are going to run an offense or a defense that is going to prepare you for the NFL. Like, are you going to like, are, are they going to, uh, you know, one of the big things that I found over the past couple of years is like space eating nose tackles affect the passing game, right? Even though they don't get pressure, are you going to be a place that promotes that kind of defensive player? Um, you know, are you going to be smart enough? Because I think the thing that college football coaches they're worried about is okay, if we develop players for the NFL, it's going to come at the expense of winning the college game. The 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 edge is going to be the the coach that can say no i can develop nfl players and win the college game and like that well, I mean, why, why why do they think that i mean the vikings said they, they are you know it said they don't have a superstar quarterback they're winning nfl games why couldn't you just sort of do the same thing in college i know you can't just get a justin jefferson uh you know out of the out of the trees right but yeah um how come they think that that pro style doesn't win as many games in college when so few teams actually do it well it, because it, because it, i think it, they look they look at the alabamas and like oh what alabama like i think it's just i think it's out of fear like i i don't think it's actually something that's real i just think it's something that's imagined and and, and people fear for for it Part of my theory is that if you look at football in general, just no different than, say, the medical industry, right? You look at high school, 
Okay. If anyone took like a medical class in high school or a health class, uh, you know, you're in HOSA or something, health, health occupational studies. Uh, and then you go to, you know, people go to college and maybe there, there's RN, there's, you're a, you go to nursing school all the way up to like, you know, you're 35 years old and you're finally out on your own after like, you know, 15 years of heart surgeon, um, uh, uh, schooling and, and fellowships and all these things. I feel like in the, the, the interesting thing about college football is that a lot of coaches come from the lower levels, the sort of the lower levels of sort of educate football education. And I think, as you know, that the, the top, I know people think it's crazy, but like, yeah, I, in my opinion, the smartest coaches are the ones that are in the NFL. They, they've been doing it for, for 10 years or 20 years or even longer, but it's all you do all the time. There's no recruiting. Uh, there is development, but you're developing the, the best players who are also the, some of the smartest players. Like there's, there's just the most capacity, uh, you know, a guy like Andrew Whitworth, how much does he know about football? He did it for, you know, 17 years at the pro level. So it really, I feel like drops off when you go to that college level and in particular athletic directors, hire coaches who a lot of times coached at a lower level. So they never, they're so far away from that, like Andrew Whitworth of, 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 of development or these guys who have coached in the NFL for a long, long time. I'm not trying to say NFL coaches are smarter. They, I feel like they just have so much, there's just so much more time put into the deep details of football. Well, as, and as we're talking that, about the, the smaller levels, it's recruiting and having a great quarterback and having a couple of things you do differently and great culture, which I love it like at Iowa state, but it seems like there's sort of a, um, a, a, a deep details uh, and signs of football drop off. Well, and it's, it's also just like, it's why like in baseball, the Oakland A's had to be smarter than the Yankees because the, the Yankees could just sign a starting pitcher if they were weak one. Whereas like Oakland had to develop one or, or, or get guys who are weaker to be better. Like in the NFL, you can't do, like, look at Denver, Denver for years struggled the quarterback position. They're like, okay, we're just going to go out and get one no matter what. And like, that's blown up in their face. Like you can't just acquire talent in the NFL. Like you have to, you have to most cases work with the talent you have. And that's why a guy like Shane Waldron, for example, um, is so impressive, right? Because Geno Smith had been nothing in the NFL to this point and they're getting great value out of him in college football. Like, if you like, and look, if Nick Saban had a bad year, you just recruit the hell out of the next year. And, and that's the solution. And so I think it's just what the environments breed, which is in the NFL, you have to outsmart your opponent because you can't out talent them on average. Right. Or the talent is mostly fixed in college football. The talent isn't fixed. Like you can just go out and recruit better players. If you are one, you know, one of these truly elite teams. And it's also why I think, you know, why, uh, coaches at lower levels end up being so coveted is because the ones that do stand out in division two, like my, my offensive line coach when I was in college, I played tight end. He, I said, well, why, why do you like to teach or coaching division two? He's like, well, cause you all suck. So it, it matters how good of a coach I am. Whereas if I go to the, if I go to division one, it, it really doesn't matter how good of a coach I am because it's really the talent disparity between team a and team B. And I'm like, that sort of resonated with me. Right. Like, um, and, and I think at the NFL, like everybody's good. That's the difference. And so the talent disparity is not really what wins or loses football games. It's, it's who you, it's how you can coach. And so I agree with you. That's why I think coaches at the NFL level are, are a little bit better at their craft. Do you feel like there's a spot in college football for the money ball sort of 
style where you just are doing something analytically just so much better than everybody else that despite having a less talent, you can win more football games? I think so. Yeah, for sure. And, and I think that we talked about a little bit of it today. I think recruiting is a place where there's some meat left on the bone, but I, I really do think it's about development. I think in the NFL development has gone by the wayside with the new rookie wage scale and stuff like that. So, um, and so that's trickled down to college football. Uh, I, I, I do think so. And I also think like keeping players healthy is a big thing as well, because football is such a weak link game. We talk about use check. We talk about, um kittle like being able to keep players on the field in a game that's really fragile is also important interesting well that's it for today i know you have things to do mr eric eager i sincerely appreciate your time uh, i always enjoy talking to you one of the smartest people in all of football uh i, I love it. You're, you're one of the best twitter follows uh you truly give two shits about what people uh think you call out everybody pro coaches college coaches bad uh, front office decisions, um, uh, really enjoyable uh, uh, Twitter follow as well. So I always enjoy talking to you. Um, you know, football is such a sport that in its history has always been this sort of overly masculine meathead style. You know, I listen, I, I played, I played going back to that old school and I feel like the game is changing for the better. Uh, and I think a lot of that has to do with, you know, people like you who are going beyond just to like, Oh, we're going to run it. Uh, and we're going to put our will on them and that's how we're going to win games this year. And now it's like, you know, people want to be a little bit more thoughtful, uh, and want to have more information to give themselves the best chance to be successful. And that's sort of your world, you know, how to help organizations, groups to be sort of maximize their, their capabilities. And I'm excited to see where your career goes after leaving PFF and now Sumer sports. I'm, got, I'm looking forward to seeing what your, what your next steps are. Maybe it's the head coach in Nebraska. <laughs> well, hey, Sage, those are uh, very kind words, and and I, uh, you're you're one of my favorites, uh, one of my favorites in, in this space as well, and I really appreciate you having me on. Uh, well, thanks for coming on, and that is it for this show. Uh, come back next week on the Iowa Everywhere Network, the Rose and Blue Podcast. I have no idea who the guests will be, but hopefully, it's something related to an Iowa State win. That would be nice. They play the Sooners uh, this weekend. So again, thanks, Eric, for for coming on, and uh, and have a great day. Iowa everywhere.